0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Sam Keen, and he's just published a book in July 2021. Title of the book is The Ice Pick Surgeon Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science. Fascinating book. Really goes into kind of the history of science and some of the darkness that I was involved in really, you know, creating kind of the historical scientific record for the west or humanity in general but this is not his first book he's also published in 2010 the disappearing spoon and other true tales of madness love and history and the history of the world from the periodic table of the elements in 2012 he published the violinist's thumb and other lost tales of love war and genius as written by our genetic code 2014 the tale of the dueling neurosurgeons the history of the human brain as revealed by true stories of trauma madness and recovery and in 2017, Caesar's Last Breath, Decoding the Secrets of the Air Around Us. And then 2019, The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. That looks like a very interesting book. But uh, again, we're gonna talk about this book he just published, the title of which is The Ice-Pick Surgeon. So Sam Keane, are you there?
1: I am here, yes. Sorry so, to make you
0: read all those subtitles. Those are that's well, it just gives the listener an idea of your background, your interests, and mm-hmm. I think uh, you can kind of see the, the trajectory of what you write about all the way up to the icepick Surgeon. So for, you, for people who may not have heard your name, mm-hmm. can you talk about how you developed this interest in the history of science and what led you to write the icepick Surgeon?
1: Yeah, so broadly talking about my books, uh, kind of in general, what I really try to do is show the human side of science. So the heroes and villains, all the conflict and drama, all the real juicy stuff that makes for a good story, but just they happen to be stories about science. And in all of my books, I really do emphasize the story element. So My first book was trying to find a spooky or weird or unusual story about every single element on the periodic table. Or the neuroscience book I wrote was about people who have suffered injuries in different parts of their brains, and then their personalities change in these very specific ways. So, people become uh, chronic liars afterward, they can no longer tell the truth, or they suddenly can't recognize their children anymore because they got injured in a very specific part of the brain. So, it's really about human beings and science and how the two really intersect.
0: And I, right. please and continue. I try to make this go ahead. No, please continue. You go. Know.
1: And I try to make the science kind of lively and fun. Um, In this book, The Ice-Pick Surgeon, it does take a little bit of a look at the darker side of science. Um, I compare it basically to a true crime book where there's kind of this lurid fascination with the darker side of human beings. And this book to me is really science meets true crime. So it's a series of stories, true stories about scientists who got so obsessed with some topic or idea that they took things way, way too far. They trampled ethical boundaries and often committed crimes in the name of science. So there are stories of spies, there are stories of pirates, stories of people committing fraud, stories of people sabotaging their rivals, doing all sorts of dastardly things in the name of science.
0: Right. I mean, it really is fascinating. And you start off uh, the prologue with the story of Cleopatra. So these ideas even go back to the beginnings of uh, known history of people uh, doing questionable things in the interest of of gaining knowledge. Can you talk about her and what, what led you on to kind of your first chapter?
1: Yeah, so Cleopatra was an interesting story. I mean, everyone knows who Cleopatra is, but she actually was very interested in what we would now think of as sort of scientific-like topics. So medicine, especially, she was very interested in that and was always talking with the physicians that were sort of around the royal court, talking with them. And apparently, um, the, the sources on this are a little strange, but Apparently one day she was talking with some physicians in her royal court and a debate came up about how you can first tell whether a baby is a male or female in the womb. And no one really knew the answer. And so she came up with this kind of diabolical experiment to try to figure the answer out. So basically what she did is she had some of her maid servants. Uh, If they would commit a crime or do something where they were going to be put to death anyway, she would have them forcibly impregnated. So she would have someone rape them, essentially. And then at certain intervals after the insemination date, she would have their bellies essentially ripped open and they would try to look and see whether the babies were male or female. So it was really this gruesome uh, experiment and not how we normally think about someone like Cleopatra. And I talk about it because on the one hand, you know, if you want to be completely amoral about it, she did a good job with the experiment and setting things up with the experiment. So the science part, I guess, was uh, uh, fairly well set up. But on the other hand, it's just barbaric, an awful thing to do to somebody. So you look at it and it's sort of this uh, kind of the, the classic mad scientist case where, their science actually is pretty good, but they lost their humanity in some sense.
0: Right. And you say that she was able to distinguish at that time males from females by day 41. So she succeeded. But that is that is the beginning of that theme that you have through your whole book is what mm-hmm. are the costs? What's the human cost? And, you know, you say the scientists are typically the good guys. But I think that even in your first chapter, it's, it's the Faustian bargain for knowledge. The first chapter about William Dampier I thought was fascinating. I'd never heard his name. Can you talk about him and his influence on Western scientific thought?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a good way you put it. With this kind of a Faustian bargain where they are, um, yeah, they're lusting after knowledge and they get it, but it costs them something dear. And unfortunately, it often costs other people something as well. Um, As for William Dampier, he he was really this uh, kind of odd, unusual character in that. He was fascinated with uh, botany, essentially, and uh, zoology. So he loved plants and he loved animals. He was alive in the late 1600s, around then, and he got fascinated with all of these new specimens that were pouring into Europe from places like South America, Africa, things like that. And he got so excited about this, he decided he wanted to go around the world and collect these specimens and kind of go these places himself and see new things around the world. Problem was, he came from a fairly poor family, had no money, had no means of getting around the world. So he decided that the best way to do this, to get to these places around the world, was to become a pirate of all things. And to kind of roam around uh, buccaneering and, you know, taking ships at sea and doing things like that. And it's a bit of a, you know, kind of a a strange wacky tale. We usually don't think about scientists turning into pirates. But that was the only thing that he, that was the, the only outlet he really saw for himself where he could find a way to reach his goal. And he was willing to do, again, whatever it took to reach that goal, including becoming a pirate so he became a pirate.
0: Right, so he was a pirate, but so he's assaulting coastal towns at the same time involving himself in his fascination with zoal botany and all these other things, so he's writing things down, mm-hmm. kind of like one of the first traveling scientists, but also gauging as a buccaneer, but he really was, uh, you wrote that he was a first-class navigator, so he was kind of going out and traveling, coming back to London and, and going out. Can you talk about his travels and what he learned and brought back to uh the uk
1: yeah so a couple of things you can talk about with william dampier's travels um first of all some people credit him with inventing the entire uh genre of a travel log or kind of travel writing because he went more places on earth than probably anyone had ever been at that time i mean he went everywhere every single spot on earth you can think of he eventually made it there and he wrote these really lively engaging books when he got back to england and they were huge bestsellers. so that i mean they're really really exciting interesting books to read because he would talk about how they would go somewhere they would raid a city and then there would be an alligator attack or something or he would talk about the toucans there or all of the amazing things that he'd seen so there's this really interesting mix of Uh, kind of dastardly crimes, the buccaneering, but also the amazing sights and sounds and animals and plants that he'd seen. He also brought back, um, he was kind of an anthropologist in some ways, in that beyond just the plants and animals and the specimens that he would bring back, he also was very interested and engaged with the people. And you really see he had a remarkable, especially for the time, a remarkable ability to kind of set his judgments aside. I mean, they were doing things that to him seemed very odd and unusual in different parts of the world, but he was always willing to set his judgments aside and just engage with them and figure out what was going on. And it got him into trouble sometimes. He, in Vietnam, I think it was, he went to a funeral once and he saw all these meats laid out and he didn't know what was going on, but he was there, he was interested. At one point he grabbed some of the meat and started eating it. Uh, that turned out to be a bad idea because that was sort of a uh, sacred sacrificial meat that he should not have touched and ended up getting run out of town for that. But he was always kind of stumbling into these adventures like that and really willing to just engage with whoever he saw and whatever he saw around the world. So, a very good writer, too.
0: Right. And he was the uh, first person to, to reach Australia. So, he's talking about that. And then he was the first, really, I think you write the first, he was involved in the first. Right out, flat out scientific voyage in history. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, first uh, European to, or first, at least first Englishman to reach Australia, I think he was.
0: Um, okay, sorry.
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, and the, uh, oh, yeah, the first scientific expedition, yeah. So this was kind of a new idea at the time that people would go out just for the sake of science, so just for knowledge. Before this, people had been to different parts of the world, but the goal was to set up colonies or to be a pirate. This was the first time in the early 1700s where people went out explicitly in order to gain knowledge. It was kind of a new idea. And I think the government of England at the time probably was doing it a bit for propaganda reasons in order to make themselves seem enlightened. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't give uh, Dampier the best ship in their fleet. They gave him sort of this old creaky Navy ship and he ended up having uh, a few disasters along the way and the ship never actually made it back from Australia. But it was a really uh, novel idea at the time, and William Dempier was the first person to lead one of these scientific expeditions that would later become famous under other people like uh, you know James Cook and some other um, – uh, and the, the Beagle is kind of the paradigmatic example um, right. of that.
0: Yeah. Right, and you, I think you wrote that he was influential upon Darwin. Oh, yeah.
1: Darwin actually brought some of his books along on the Beagle voyage and would consult them and figure out, you know, where he wanted to go based on what Dampier had written. So he was a big influence on Darwin. And Darwin would chuckle about him in his diaries and letters. He would call him old Dampier, like that old rascal Dampier running around. He was a big influence on Darwin.
0: Right. I mean, he really was a rascal. So you attribute this kind of naturalism of that, that time right there at the beginning of the 18th century to this kind of buccaneer. It's pretty remarkable to how many people he influenced as well. Can you talk also about kind of the dark part of human history, slavery, and how the, just that kind of uh, industry, I mean, it's terrible to call it an industry, but that kind of involvement in slavery and how that influenced Mm-hmm. Uh, the dark influence on science.
1: Yeah. So this actually kind of leads, uh, follows naturally, I guess, from the Dampier section. And that I mentioned that people really weren't doing a lot of scientific expeditions and it was kind of a rare idea. So whereas Dampier became a pirate, uh, the person I focus on in the second chapter is someone named Henry Smithman. So he was also a naturalist. He studied insects. And he also decided that he wanted to go to places like Africa and the Caribbean and study insects in these places. But again, he came from a poor family, had no way to get to these places. And this was right around, uh, you know, uh, late 1700s, around that era. Um, Pirates had been cleaned up a little bit by then, so that wasn't as much of an option. So he decided to kind of hitch himself to slave ships. Um, He would take a slave ship down to Africa, which is where he started doing his work. And this was a bit of a compromise for him because he started off as an abolitionist. He was opposed to slavery, but there was really no other practical way for him to get down to Africa. And he was so uh, on fire about the idea of becoming a naturalist that he decided he would make this one little compromise. He would go down there on what would become a slave ship once they picked up people in Africa. But that was all he was going to do. He was just going to do this one thing. And then he, when he was down there, he would just be a naturalist. Well, for him, it turned out to be not so simple because essentially the entire economy of the English colony in Africa at that time was based on slavery. So he ended up having to trade with slavers and then step by step, you see him slowly get drawn into the slavery system. Whereas by the end, even though he started off as an abolitionist, by the end he is actually trading slaves himself, dabbling directly in the slave trade. And It's a really good example of how someone can compromise their morals like that. But it's also an example, I think, of kind of the wider point of the chapter is just how pervasive slavery was in the economy then and in Europe, especially how big it was and how big of a factor it was, because even someone who was really opposed to slavery and science itself was really tied up in the slave trade. And I talked about how, you know, several museums and things that have these really amazing collections a lot of it a lot of their core collection was collected via the slave trade so the early days of science were tied up unfortunately in the slave trade
0: right i mean it's really incredible like these these august institutions like the british museum you write about mm-hmm. have are really at, at their core was uh, by people who were involved in that or at least beneficiaries of that dark trade right
1: yeah and they, they don't like to talk about it but uh <laughs> That, that is definitely true, that the, the core of their collection, in fact, the start of their collection wasn't by Henry Smithman. it was another person, but he was essentially a plantation owner who benefited from the slave trade, was also a collector, and he would use his connections and use the money he made off the slave trade to buy specimens that ended up founding one of the most important museums in the world. So they're directly in their founding uh, from the slave trade.
0: Right. And then, like, you talk about New- Newton and Linnaeus, these very important figures, and their reliance on slave- information from the slave trade to uh, in- really conduct their work, right?
1: Yeah. So, Newton was an interesting example because, you know, he's obviously probably the, the greatest scientist who ever lived, very famous. And he was working at the time that he was doing this on gravity and sort of celestial mechanics, kind of the most otherworldly. Uh, a branch of science you could think of, something totally removed from the everyday realities of life on Earth. But the way he was going about this was he was talking about things like the gravitational pull of the moon that causes tides and other phenomenon, and he needed data on tides at different points around the world. Well, the way he got that data was he would send letters to people who were going on slave hunts or who were bringing slaves to these ports at different points around the world. And he would gather data from them, so gather data basically from these slave ports around the world. So he might not have been able to finish his grand works had this infrastructure of slavery not been in place around the world. So even someone like Isaac Newton was benefiting from the slave trade.
0: Gotcha. And I mean, it is, And he that was really the first person to really determine tides too. So comes from the slave trade, the uh, I mean, it, it really is incredible. And that, that was like the triangular system. So all the sh- ships are going from Europe to Africa, New World back to Europe. So you see this huge triangle of trade being products and things like that. So, but that also, um, I mean, it kind of, you kind of turn that system of darkness into kind of the another trade of bodies, which is this grave robbing with this need for specimens and things like that. Can you talk about uh, you talk about Hunter and Knox, these figures who were involved in this grave robbing trade?
1: Yeah. So essentially medicine in the 1800s or so, so mid 1700s to 1800s, uh, they wanted to make medicine a legitimate science. So before this especially, it was quack treatments, you know, tobacco enemas and bleeding people, all this stuff that really, had no basis in science. So there were certain anatomists like John Hunter, Robert Knox, uh, who wanted to make it a legitimate scientific subject. They had a problem, though, in that to understand how the body worked, they needed to understand how it was put together. So they needed to understand anatomy. And to do that, to understand anatomy, they needed to look inside the human body. Unfortunately, uh, especially in England and the United States, there were strong societal taboos against people donating their bodies to science. So it was very hard to get a hold of a body and dissect it, essentially. And so what they started doing is they started robbing graves in order to get their hands on bodies. And it's really – It's a tough call because they were trying to advance medicine. They were trying to help people, trying to cure diseases and ailments. And as they sometimes pointed out, it was the poor people who were going to benefit most from this because poor people often have a higher burden of diseases. Unfortunately, uh, the graves that they were robbing were also poor people because poor people were often tossed into mass graves that were not covered right away, or poor people frankly couldn't afford things like guards or what they called mort safes, which were iron cages that they would put around bodies to prevent them from being stolen. So the poor people were the ones who got their bodies stolen by the anatomists and dissected. So the anatomists sometimes did the grave robbing themselves or sometimes they would engage uh, basically criminals. They would pay them to go dig up the bodies at night. And, and John Hunter especially, uh, he dissected something like 2,000 different bodies in his lifetime, which means he was robbing graves pretty much night after night after night, year after year after year. He was really prolific about getting all of the bodies he could. And he unquestionably helped science advance, but he also made a lot of people very angry and did things that we would not allow today in basically violating people's last wishes and carving up their bodies.
0: Right. And, and just to, sorry to interrupt, but they were of high value at that time. So, I mean, back then, you one dead person was worth like a laborer's full year of pay or something like that, I think you wrote.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you could be a farm worker and you could make, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like three or four pounds sterling for a whole year. Or you could rob a few bodies and make that in a couple nights. I mean, to a lot of people, it was a no brainer. Why not go rob bodies? Because they were so valuable. And the the story I really like about this that I really find fascinating is that in certain places, especially in the United States, Every once in a while, you would see the poor people get tired, understandably, of having their loved ones' bodies robbed. So they got sick of it, and eventually they rose up and they rioted against the doctors. So they would run up and they would smash the windows at the hospital. Uh, Sometimes they would beat the doctors up. They would grab the bodies inside and rebury them. And probably the most famous example of this, uh, an anatomy riot as they called them, took place in New York City in 1788, where again, they smashed the windows at the hospital. One doctor had to flee up inside a chimney to hide from the mob. And at one point, uh, Alexander Hamilton himself uh, was standing on the steps of Columbia University and essentially begging people not to destroy Columbia University because they were that mad about it because of the grave robbing that was going on at the medical school there. So it's kind of been lost to history uh, these so-called anatomy riots. But
0: right. yeah, you um, call them bo- bone bills. They had to pass these anatomy acts, right? Yeah,
1: basically to give the the the, the bone bills. Yeah, to give people bodies so that there would no longer be these kind of riots.
0: And, I mean, it was really fascinating. I mean, they, one of the riots, you said there were 20 dead people. So, like, these were very serious events. And, yeah.
1: You know, right so, essentially, the- after, after the New York riots, or during the New York riot, the mayor of New York called the militia in, and things got pretty heated. And it's a little unclear what happened there. But the militia opened fire on the mob and ended up killing several people. So it started over one body and ended with several more dead bodies. Sadly.
0: And I mean, you talk also about uh, this kind of event that happened at Harvard that really pushed forward kind of forensic science. I mean, so these de- this investigations into bones and bodies actually benefited this kind of uh, murder trial, right?
1: Yeah. So this, again, kind of arises from the previous chapter. In that there was, I mean, this is one of the juicy stories in the book. It's a murder tale, actually, where a Harvard professor killed a prominent Harvard alumni, um, alumnus, I should say. And uh, basically, it was a doctor in the medical school who murdered someone else and then used his knowledge of anatomy to dispose of the body. So because he was a doctor, he knew how to dissect them in an expert way, get them hacked up into little pieces and what to do with those body parts. Uh, eventually, however, he did get caught by the school's janitor, of all people, who really put together this kind of interesting um, case against him. It was, uh, it was really sort of intrepid work on the janitor's part. But to stick with this story for now, um, he, he hacked the body up, got caught with it. But there was this question of, okay, we don't have any, We they didn't have the head anymore, unfortunately. So they didn't know specifically whose body it was. Also, this was a medical school. So there were bodies coming in and out of the medical school all the time. And the doctor who had killed the guy was denying that he had murdered him and denying that he had anything to do with this man's disappearance. And he was saying, well, this is a medical school. How do we know he didn't die somewhere else and someone sold the body to one of the anatomists here? We have no idea how this body got into the medical school where there are tons of other dead bodies lying around. So essentially, they had to call in the other anatomists and have them figure out not only was this person murdered or not, but whether it was the person that they wanted to know about in the first place. And I really compare it to the um oj simpson trial 150 or so years later where that was the first big case where uh, dna evidence was at the center of the trial and it really made people familiar with dna evidence for the first time same thing happened here they used techniques about forensic anatomy forensic dentistry to piece together a good solid murder case And because of that, uh, and because the case was such a big deal, because you had Harvard people murdering each other. I mean, who wouldn't want to know about this case? Because it was such a big deal in the newspapers, it made people familiar with forensic anatomy for the first time and really helped spread it and make it legitimate as a topic for courtrooms.
0: Yeah, really fascinating story. i had never heard that story either. And you kind of jumped to Really interesting time in the development of technology of these interesting characters, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse. A lot of people may not know anymore. I remember the Westinghouse company. Can you talk about the development of electricity and what that involved and the uh, some ethical questions?
1: Yeah. So this story involved uh, Thomas Edison, essentially it was at the, the heart of this story. And I think we all know Thomas Edison today. He helped develop the light bulb, invented the phonograph, really, really uh, did some pretty incredible work. But he really had a ruthless side as well. There's a famous quote about him. uh, One of his business associates said essentially that he had a vacuum where his conscience ought to be. So he was really ruthless when it came to business matters. And specifically, In the story that I talk about in the book, he had a rivalry with uh, another business person named Westinghouse. So Edison essentially had patents on what was called direct current, or DC as we now call it. Westinghouse and his main engineer, uh, the brilliant Nikola Tesla, they had patents on what's called alternating current, or AC, These are two separate systems, DC and AC. Edison wanted DC to win in the marketplace. And he was willing to do whatever it took to make DC look good and to make AC look as bad as possible to the point where he, and this is hard for some people to to hear and to read about, but he would essentially take dogs and horses and other animals and he would electrocute them on stage. And he would do so with AC Current in order to supposedly prove that AC Current was much more deadly than his, much safer, he claimed, direct Current. And even beyond that, uh, at the beginning of his career, Edison was an opponent of capital punishment. He did not believe that people who committed crimes should be killed. He just did not believe in that. However, later in life, someone wrote him and said, hey, you know, this new industry, electricity, we might be able to use that to kill people in a more humane way than hanging or uh, firing squad, something like that. And Edison said, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe in the death penalty. Until he realized that, wait a second, I could actually set things up so that they're killing these terrible criminals with my rival's alternating current technology. So Edison was actually the driver behind the first electric chair in the world. And it was all because he wanted to discredit his business rival.
0: Right. And he was, I mean, you use the word bastard in reference to Edison, backstabber, so pretty uh, ruthless businessman. And how did that develop? How did the – Electric chair development, and you tell a story about that.
1: Yeah, so essentially, he again he realized, despite his early opposition to it, that if he simply made it very clear that they were using alternating current, his rival's technology, that it would go a long way toward discrediting his rival. So he sent, he had this kind of lackey that he would send around um, doing things and, uh, including the, the animal stuff. But this lackey ended up being kind of the the person who put together and logistically, um, set up the first electric chair and the electric chair itself, the, the debut of it, uh, was not a pretty sight. Uh, essentially they didn't know what they were doing and they had to zap the unfortunate fellow, uh, several times. And this guy was – the person who died was not a good person. He committed a very brutal murder, but he ended up suffering a lot in the chair itself uh, because essentially they didn't know what they were doing.
0: Right. And you said that, like, his body was in a fixed position till the next day, still hot, so they couldn't call him dead. So it was super – Brutal. I mean, probably more brutal than a hanging or a firing squad it was.
1: Just- yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It was definitely more brutal than a firing squad or hanging would have been. Uh, the the so he, his body was the muscles contracted so tightly that when they put him on the stage, essentially, or excuse me, put him on the um, dissecting table, it was locked into place, and they could not get his limbs unlocked. And the medical definition of death at the time, they didn't really look at the heart or anything like that. They looked at body temperature. So when the body had dropped below a certain temperature, that's when they declared people dead. Um, But the body had gotten so hot due to the electricity, they had to wait hours and hours and hours to declare this person dead even though he had a giant hole in his skull from the electricity had burned inside, his body was so warm and radiating so much heat that they had to wait a long time to uh, declare him dead.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable. Can you, I mean, there's a really interesting chapter that I think is very timely and it's about this guy, John money and uh, reminded me of uh, just kind of things that are happening in the culture today. Can you talk about John money and his influence and how uh uh, well, he wasn't very ethical at all. Can you talk about his research?
1: Yeah, so John Money was a bit of a tough case, um, and it gets it's a fairly political topic. So uh, a lot of you know kind of sensitivities around that. But basically, John Money had some ideas about uh, things like sex, gender. We're seeing a lot of this come up today with debates um, and fights about, you know, transgender rights, things like that. So John Money was on the very, very far end of the spectrum where he decided that uh, environment basically determined everything about someone's sexuality. So there was no inborn um, uh, sexual orientation, you didn't have any inborn gender preference, anything like that. Right,
0: it's a but blank the, slate theory of sexuality, right? The,
1: yeah, exactly, the blank slate theory of sexuality, where it was all inborn and environment determined everything and not, had nothing to do with our heritage as you know, being mammals and our 150 million year heritage as mammals, nothing about that. Environment drove everything. Um, And he decided that he wanted a test case to prove that this was true. And sadly, there was this uh, story uh, came out of uh, Canada where there were two twins and they were going to get circumcised and the doctor on hand was not qualified to do this. And he ended up burning one of the baby's penises very, very badly to the point that it basically fell off. It got burned so badly, it desiccated and it fell off. And the parents were, of course, horrified. They didn't know what to do with their child now. And John Money heard about this case and he said, well, let me use this as a, an experiment, essentially. He didn't put it like that to the family, certainly, but in his mind, he was thinking about this as an experiment, and he told the family what they needed to do was they needed to raise one of the twins, the one who was not hurt as just a regular boy, and then raise the other one as a girl, and so the parents very reluctantly agreed to this, and the baby had some plastic surgery, removed his testicles, things like that. And they essentially, the parents tried to raise this poor kid as a girl and never told him that he had been born a boy. And the chapter basically just chronicles all of the awful, the the entire awful upbringing that this poor kid had. Uh, Name was, went by the name of Brenda Reimer and just had a terrible, terrible childhood basically because John Money wanted to prove this theory about the blank slates of sexuality in human beings. And it's kind of a, John Money's kind of undergone this transformation in that at the beginning of his career, he was someone who was really fighting for the rights of homosexuals and even fighting for the rights of transgender people. But by the end of his career, he had taken a 180 turn he became a real villain in this community because again, he insisted that there was nothing inborn about it and that he as the doctor could kind of decide on a whim what people's sexuality and their gender identity should be. So he's really kind of this um, awful, I and mean, what he did to this, uh, this poor person, Brenda Reimer was awful. And Brenda actually ended up uh, learning about her history came out as David Reimer, uh, lived a life for a while as a man, but ultimately both of the twins actually ended up killing themselves because of this traumatic childhood that they'd had at the hands of John Money.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story. And it goes into the theme that you have throughout the book, which is that smarter doesn't mean more ethical, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I think we we kind of assume that, that it's just sort of a uh, an, un, an unexamined assumption that uh, people who are smarter are more enlightened, and you, you know, you read science fiction stories about how once people are really smart in the future, then we have this utopian society where if we just use reason and logic and things like that, everyone will be, uh, you know, very moral and ethical things like that. But if anything, the surveys that psychologists have done, the evidence kind of runs the other way, in that people who are um, who have higher IQ, which is not a perfect measure of intelligence, but people with higher IQ often commit more uh, misdeeds than other people because they think they can get away with it or they're good at covering their tracks. So something I try to do throughout the book, it's, you know, these stories about individual scientists, but I do look at commonalities as well and basically the psychology of people who commit these dastardly deeds and sort
0: right.
1: of the, yeah, the, the psychology basically of scientific criminals.
0: Right. And there's a lot more in this book. Where's the best place to get the book?
1: I think any, your local bookstore, talk to them, uh, ask them, uh, or, you know, you can go online. It's available through Barnes and Noble. It's at Amazon. You can go to the sort of the independent book hubs. They have it. So anywhere you should be able to find it.
0: Gotcha. And you also have an audiobook for this book, correct?
1: Yes, I have audiobooks uh for all of my books, actually. Oh, but yes, okay. there's an audiobook version of this one for people. Um, we love the narrator there. He's been great. So yeah, I it, think it's a, it's a good book.
0: And then do you have social media or a website if people want to reach out to you asking you any questions?
1: I do, yeah. It's just S-A-M-K-E-A-N. So my name's Sam Keen. Dot com and you can find information there about my books, the podcast that I work on, things like that.
0: What's the name of your podcast?
1: Also called The Disappearing Spoon, like my first okay, book.
0: So it goes back to the first book. Great. And again, the title of this book is The Ice-Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science by Sam Keane, just published 2021. So Sam Keane, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. All right. Great. Thank you. All right. So let me end that.